well hey there soccer fans all of you who have come to join welcome to chips and channels this is episode number six i'm your host seth singleton having a lot of fun checking out these great soccer stories football stories footy stories and enjoying the fact i get the chance to share them with you simply because the mic turned on the recorder worked and we get another day to get at it it was Quite an impressive moment in history recently for the uh, Seattle Sounders. They had 70,000 fans poured in to Lumen Field. I'm not sure if they just sort of like, you know, globbed into their own seats or if they were just this constant, ever moving wave of energy. But it had been described by many as feverish, if not, well, frenzied, to say the least, Wednesday night, when there was the mighty showdown for the CONCACAF Champions League final. Now, up till now, the Sounders have demonstrated that they can achieve quite a bit of success. They've already won two MLS Cups, four U.S. Open Cups, and a Supporters' Shield. That all happened since 2009. But this was a winner-take-all match, and it was against Pumas Unam. It is Seattle's sixth final under coach Brian Schmetzer. There's a lot of factors that can go right, plenty that can go wrong. Along with it, the inflection, the suggestion of immortality as coined by general manager Garth Lagerway. A massive, well, in his quotes, he said massive, apparently used an expletive, and then said deal for the club in the assessment of uh, the head coach, Brian Schmetzer. So what do you do when you've got all that on the line? How do you make the choice? Well... If you're the Sounders, you go out and you grab with gusto, and you just keep grabbing. Fighting for turf, fighting for every pass, fighting for every goal, it was the Sounders who defeated the Pumas 3-0. It was a match described as rough and tumble, something that culminated in the greatest achievement in the club's history, and certainly in the MLS history, in the process they make a statement about CONCACAF, its balance of power, the, the fact that so many of the decisions have gone to Mexican teams. And now, what could be considered a tide, if not an entire sea of change. It was an aggregate score of 5-2 to two that uh, really established so much of their strength in this CONCACAF Champions League title. This moment, if there's any other way to put it, breaks a string of Liga MX teams winning the championship, which has been going back all the way to 2008, and um, four distinctive losses suffered by the MLS teams. This was a massive blow in recognition of the team's prestige. Um, 
There's a lot of words going around right now. The elites, the upper crust, the, you know, team above all others. There were plenty of iconic figures um, providing promotional support leading up to the game. Marshawn Lynch, King Griffey Jr., certainly two very established and I would say very recognizable celebrity figures in Seattle sports. The Sounders now get an automatic entry into the FIFA Club World Cup, which brings together continental champions of federations from around the world, Asia, Africa, South America, Oceania, and Europe, in addition to CONCACAF. And Seattle will get a chance to put themselves right up there with the best and the brightest. Europe will be represented by either Liverpool or Real Madrid. Either way, both teams are described as soccer royalty. For the Sounders, they get a chance to jump in. I mean, what I've read suggests that they're going to dip into that pool. Well, I say do a cannonball, jump in with a splash. Now my little dude over there, he's sleeping and he's going to snore sometimes. Right now he's keeping it pretty light. But what does it mean to be recognized as a team that is elite? Well, I'm sure we'll get a chance to hear more about that and see more about that. And I think this will only add to the sort of fever frenzy that teams feel when they play against the Sounders. If you're going up against the best, you want to beat them. And should you somehow find a way to beat them, you want to be able to shout it from the rooftops. At least I do. Maybe I'm the only one. But um, it's going to be very interesting to see how things play out. Um, Right now, there's a lot to look forward to as far as what's happened. I mean, the the number of fans at the game was the largest ever for a CONCACAF Champions League match at any stage. Um, Brian Schmetzer, head coach for the Sounders, said the connection to fans and players is the spirit of this club. Sounders had uh, squared away with a 2-2 tie. In the first stage of the final, that match played in Mexico City. Um, Sounders dominated the second stage of the match, despite having players Nu and Yao Paulo go to injury within the first 25 minutes. It was Raul Ruidias who kickstarted the scoring. 45th minute, a goal that, uh, (laughs) according to some reports, made the press box shake from the resulting response. How do you cap it off? You had another goal in the 80th minute. A mixture of precision, passing, and, as highly regarded as it should be, unselfish pass play. Jordan Morris to Nico Ladero. Ladero closing out the scoring in the 88th minute, um, <laughs> ripping off his jersey, celebrating that uh, that moment, that excitement, and then Schmetzer doing the classy thing, taking out players, Rudias, Ladero, and Morris, three minutes into stoppage time. 
to allow them a very well-deserved recognition and ovation from the fans. And then allowing players, especially elder players, Will Bruin and Freddie Montero, to have a taste of the historic moment in those final minutes. Then when the clock expired, Sounders team exploding into jumps, leaps, a huge, as it's described, deluge of confetti pouring out, a victory celebration not seen at the stadium in any kind of comparison, except for that maybe in 2019 with an MLS Cup victory over Toronto. Schmetzer, he was pretty interesting. He said, I said in some press thing, give me six months and I'm probably going to stick around. Right now I'm living in the moment and I'm just so proud of that group of guys, all of them, because it's not just the guys that scored the goals tonight and it's not just the Yamars and Stephs in reference to goalie Stefan Frey those guys but it's all the young kids that are coming out the academy guys they all get a taste of what this club is all about i'm just super super proud of the way the team performed throughout this tournament under some adversity it's not an easy tournament to win a lot of people were asking me about the subtle pressure about coming here to perform in front of a large crowd i think they passed that test and i think they passed it with flying colors schmetzer went on to later address the crowd after the game talking about the role of the fans energizing the team, how they were, quote-unquote, freaking awesome. (laughs) And when later talking to the media, changing spectacular and awesome, um, adding, you guys heard it when the teams walked out tonight. You felt the energy in the building, and the players felt it. And with that, the Sounders were able to ride that energy, collect their first ever, the first ever for the MLS, CONCACAF Champions League title. And I can only imagine there is much, much more in store. Now, this is one of those stories you really just can't make up. I mean, don't get me wrong. Maybe you can. Maybe people have. Maybe it's a whole lot of nothing. I mean, I don't know. (laughs) At some point, if you're representing a country... um, Your nationality often comes into play. Your ability to be recognized as someone who is quote-unquote eligible to play for that country. Now, there's usually some governing body that's in charge of that. And in this case, more often than not with soccer, it comes down to FIFA. So, this story (laughs) really caught my attention because it has to do with a a player from Ecuador by the name of Byron Castillo. But understanding the importance of how he comes into play requires rewinding the clock just a little. See, it was about two months after Chile had failed to qualify for the 2022 World Cup that they decided to take what is described in many articles as the unprecedented route to the tournament by a legal dispute one that is based on an allegedly falsified birth certificate. I was blown away. According to Chile Soccer Federation, uh, a filing of an official complaint to FIFA was made on Wednesday. In that filing, Chile alleges that Ecuador, 
which is one of the six South American teams that finished ahead of the Chileans, fielded an ineligible player during qualifying. The claim goes on to say that Byron Castillo, an Ecuadorian defender, was actually born in Colombia. And without referencing the World Cup in its official statement, it filed the complaint one week after Chilean media calculated that if Ecuador were punished with forfeits, Chile could take Ecuador's place at this year's tournament in Qatar. I was blown away. I mean, you know, it's it's something that I've actually seen happen recently in other sports. And I'm kind of curious what you think about it. Um, these are things that catch my attention just because they do. I'm sure that's the intention behind the publication. They believe a story is newsworthy. And there's also the question of how fans, how readers respond. Do they believe it's newsworthy? If they do, then that will propel a story to gain traction, to push forward, to continue. And as it does, um, there can be a lot of consequences. So there have been recent stories in which players who performed in, in an appropriate way the consequences of their actions reverberates to the team and in many cases can lead to forfeitures on the part of the team. Now that's not all there is to consider because things have taken quite a decided turn. There is now a very broad probe that has been put in place, started, or is actively running that is calling into question hundreds of Ecuadorian players whose birth records are not, I don't know, they're not adding up. There's, there's plenty of concern. Currently, Ecuadorian officials had cleared Castillo to play for the national team last year, and he appeared in eight qualifiers ever since September. But just last week, Colombian journalist Sebastian Bejarano introduced new evidence in a court case that reignited the case. A birth certificate that is, I love this word, purportedly <laughs> belonging to Castillo appears to show that he was born not on November 10th, 1998 in General Villamil Playas, Ecuador, but rather on July 25th. 1995, i.e. three years earlier, and in Tumaco, Colombia. Now, Ecuador Soccer Federation called um, this possibility unfounded rumors, in quotes, in a statement on Thursday, going on to say that Castillo is, quote, an Ecuadorian citizen for all legal purposes, both in the civil sphere and in sports, um, and that there's plenty of documentation to prove it. Documentation. Documentation. <laughs> um, Chile went on to argue that there were, quote-unquote, innumerable proofs that Castillo was born in Colombia and that he was 26 years old, not 23. Um, this gets, as it's been described by many publications, murky. So why? Well... Castillo could still be eligible to represent Ecuador internationally because he has never represented Colombia and he's lived in Ecuador for more than five years. 
um, which puts a lot of reliance on false documentation rather than an official request for change of nationality. That could make Castillo ineligible. And Chile, in its statement, cited quote-unquote irregularities that Ecuadorian government agencies had previously instigated. Ecuadorian soccer officials were likewise concerned by those irregularities in the past, enough so that they apparently withheld Castillo, who is a very talented young fullback, from the national team early in the qualifying cycle. And in March of 2021, Ecuadorian Federation Vice President Carlos Manzer said, I think it's a matter of playing it safe, avoiding problems. If it were up to me, I would not have him play for the national team. I would not take that risk. So, according to records, the Ecuadorian court resolved the case, corrected the quote-unquote irregularities, and Castillo went on to join the team and helped it to finish fourth in South American qualifying. Manzur said just last week that the case was quote-unquote closed that the Ecuadorian Federation said in its Thursday statement that it, quote, categorically rejects any attempt, end quote, to invalidate its World Cup participation. But Chile said that the world of soccer cannot close its eyes to so much proof. Going on to say, serious and conscious irregularities in the registration of players cannot be accepted, especially when we talk about a world competition. There must be fair play on and off the pitch. And implying that if Ecuador did flout the rules, its wins and draws that involved Castillo would become forfeit losses, including one of each against Chile. And that last World Cup cycle, Bolivia was forced to forfeit two matches in a similar situation because they had fielded an ineligible player. Now, if this was to happen in the... uh, current situation, Ecuador would be knocked out of the South American top four because of the forfeits, and Chile, who had finished seventh, would, as it's described, retroactively gain five points, jump back up to fourth, and then what do we have? Well, right now, the case is resting with FIFA and could end up at the Court of Arbitration for Sport. I love all these places. I I kind of wish I'd known about them when I was younger. I almost think I would have been intrigued at getting a job at one of them, simply because I could be so much closer to great stories like this. However, it's also unclear how FIFA would handle sanctions if Ecuador was or is found guilty. The Ecuadorians were placed in Group A at last month's World Cup draw. No country has ever been disqualified from a World Cup between the draw and the start of the tournament. And Ecuador's opening match is November 21st. I'm recording this on May 8th. Happy Mother's Day to everyone. So, what's going to happen next? Uh, I really wish I knew, but right now, I'm just waiting to see like the rest of us. You know what the great thing about National Women's Soccer League is? I'll give you a hint. It's more than one thing. And that's actually one of my favorite things about it. Pardon me while I adjust pillow that somehow wound up here (laughs) and in my way. What I love about the National Women's Soccer League is that it's an opportunity for professional soccer that includes an entire group of people who up until now have not had a venue to play in. And as U.S. Women's National Team proved over the past 20 years, 
women's soccer can be as, and in my opinion, many times more exciting than men's soccer can. It can be a lot of fun, and it's pretty amazing to see just how tactical, just how brilliant the sport can be when played with a completely different mindset. And I love when that kind of thing is rewarded because it means, in my opinion, the possibility of sustained and substantial growth, which is why the announcement that the National Women's Soccer League uh, has its first title sponsor for the Challenge Cup tournament is, in my opinion, a really great development. Sources were telling Yahoo Finance, and it was finalized that in 2023, the tournament will be called the UKG Challenge Cup, and the tournament's prize pool will be $1 million. I can't do a Dr. Evil voice. I don't, I don't have a camera, so even if I did the finger thing, um, you wouldn't know. And it's now been so long that I believe the, the reference is quite, if not substantially, outdated. So the dogs are snoring and not really interested. I, on the other hand, am really caught by so much that this can mean. And I love this quote from the NWSL commissioner, Jessica Berman, when she was talking with Yahoo Finance, saying, quote, there's a value proposition here from a business perspective that not only we see, but others see. And in particular, brands who are looking to invest in women's sport, and in particular, the NWSL to really reach a new and engaged and unique audience relative to other sports. Now, Berman went on to say, I'm expecting this to be a continuation of what really has been the opening of the floodgates in terms of brands really reaching out to us and wanting to be part of our growth story, which is clear is on the move and brands want to be a part of it. It's interesting that the deal comes during a time when many women's soccer players have been fighting for pay equity between their league and the men's soccer league. In fact, the U.S. women's national soccer team recently settled a court case on the issue that provided players a combined $22 million. Huge development, in my opinion, and one that I'm really looking forward to. Um, many of the women's... Uh, U.S. or the women's national team players, I got tripled doubled, stumbled, whippled over uh, <laughs> the acronyms. So um, many of the U.S. women's national team players also play in the NWSL, which is the most prominent women's professional soccer league. Until recently, the players' international fame hadn't really translated into major sponsorship for the NWSL teams. And Berman goes on to add that it's a great thing that our players are stars and are continuing to gain interest from their fan bases because that will ultimately ladder back up to their NWSL teams in the league overall. But she went on to say that there needs to be intentionality around that, where we find the ways for the players to really be thoughtful about promoting the NWSL and their NWSL teams. And I think that will flow from continuing to go trust through partnerships with the players and the Players Association as they move forward. One such, Elevate Sports Ventures, which works with a variety of sports franchises from the NFL to NBA and others, negotiated the agreement between UKG and the NWSL and will continue to assist in managing strategy and activation for the, as it said, cause-driven brand and league partnership. 
UKG chief of belonging, diversity, and equity, Brian K. Reeves, said pay inequity has been a pervasive problem for far too long. And as an organization whose purpose is people and whose business is HR and payroll technology, UKG believes all people have a fundamental right to equitable pay and equitable opportunity. Going on to say, he went on to say, we're thrilled to welcome the NWSL to our roster of elite athletes and professional sports teams as we work together to push for change. Now, this is important to keep in mind just as far as timelines go, because it's been almost a year since the NWSL uh, received and worked through various reports of sexual abuse and misconduct and the league is trying to rebuild its relationship with players and providing financial support will be one of those key ways to rebuild trust. Berman went on to say, it's been a really hard six months and prior, but there's a lot of enthusiasm and optimism about the future growth of the NWSL, a clear interest and desire to be partners with the league, our teams, on our growth strategy, and a firm belief that we have the ability together to unlock the potential of the NWSL. And they're all in for that. Now, I'm sure opinions about money range far and wide. I'm a big fan of equal pay, as far as I'm concerned. If you're doing the same work, you put in the same amount of time, it should be valued. Now, there are going to be those elites. There will always be those who achieve more. And I understand that the market says there's a value to that and it will be placed on whatever that player gets or receives. But for the players around them, there should be a similar sense of achievement and that there should be a base for that as well as tiers. And I'm looking forward to seeing how this continues to develop. But I think this could be the first step and maybe a domino effect of other organizations recognizing how they can invest in the NWSL and as those who invested in the MLS so many years ago reap the many rewards like for example our recent Sounders story and talking about a CONCACAF Champions League title I mean that was never something I imagine people thought might be on the horizon and for those who did their hope their dream their willingness uh, that's the reason we are here getting the chance to talk about this and all the future and wonder awaiting us. All right, well, clearly I've been on for a little too long because the dog is snoring substantially now, which is usually a sign that I need to um, wrap it up. <laughs> well, good thing I've been lucky enough to find another one of those amusing stories. I like to end each episode with... Um, this one cracked me up simply because it would appear that what could have been a problem is not a problem. And I love it when that happens because it's Thomas Tuchel, who is the manager of Chelsea, um, who says that there is, quote unquote, zero problem between him and Christian Pulisic. Now, this is following recent statements made by the uh, father of Pulisic, Mark Pulisic, who expressed disappointment after Chelsea's 1-0 loss to Everton and made a note of the fact that his son played 22 minutes as a second-half substitute. Writing on Twitter, the sad thing is he loves this club, teammates, and London, puts his heart and soul into being a pro. Onwards and upwards, my boy. Big six months ahead. And then he deleted it. Now, during a news conference on Friday... 
Tuchel was uh, asked about his relationship with Christian Pulisic, who has been not getting starts every game, has battled for them. Injuries and other factors have come into play, as well as other things. Tuchel said, uh, I'm not concerned if a father says that the player does not love me. <laughs> now, that was an interesting little blurb I caught out of the uh, Associated Press, and it was nice. But I went on to find a story from Sean Beckwith, who says that right now, Christian Pulisic's dad is every U.S. soccer fan, and talks about how Pulisic is what he calls the closest thing to uh, an American soccer star. Now, it looks like everything's kind of happening right now. I can hear the neighbors outside, the dog's getting a little bit louder, the neighbor's dog's been barking a lot. So I'll, I'll keep this relatively short. Here's what I will say. Beckwith goes on to compare uh, Pulisic's transition from Dortmund to Chelsea as something similar to leaving, say, the Spurs or uh, a smaller stand-up market and then going to the Lakers, the Bulls, or the Nets. Then he makes comparisons to Mikhail Prokhorov owning Brooklyn, um, the... Uh, <laughs> The current freezing of Robin Abramovich's assets, and then saying, simply put, that there needs to be an extraction crew sent to London to get Pulisic out of there, and that Pulisic has been relegated to the doghouse, something that his father isn't happy about, i.e. the tweet we just talked about, and Tuchel saying there's zero problem that uh, the 23-year-old player has been positive in the last few weeks. You know, at 23, I'd had my third knee surgery, walked away from a soccer team after getting cut and knowing I physically could not compete in the same way, given the injuries I'd sustained, uh, the surgery I was about to have, and the overall fatigue that playing for about five years without uh, a ligament, then a restructured one, followed by meniscus surgeries, my body was beaten and broken, I had very little to do very few places left to go. However, this story touches on the fact that at 23, Pulisic has overcome injuries, frustrations, not playing a lot, and that there is, you know, the current bids for ownership of Chelsea following the sanctions against Abramovich and the belief that there is a good reason for this to be good news for the team, a possibility that in this purchasing process, Pulisic could be in line to replace Paulo Dybala on Juventus. And if that happens, he would be on an amazing Serie A squad. Um, Pulisic could regain his playing time. He could begin the success that he has not been able to sort of get going consistently. Now, I know there's a lot of fun noise outside and there's a lot of possibilities, but one thing I, I was caught by with this story is the fact that it was almost as if the statement from the father was the catalyst. And I'm always interested when parents get as vocally involved in their players' lives. It, it's something that I had to deal with as a young athlete simply because my father chose to address me off of the field 
and during breaks and would not get in the way of the coach. He believed the coach was in charge of the team. He had entrusted my playing to that coach and that he also did not enjoy when other parents would make a point of calling out a coach in the middle of a game, during the middle of play, or interrupt their uh, coaching actions. Personalities are always going to be different. That's how I was raised. Everyone else was raised how they were raised. And their parents are involved in their lives to the degree that they want and or feel comfortable. With that sort of, uh, this is what I understand based on what I think I know. I'm amazed by the fact that this is one of those moments when in professional sports, we have yet again a parent who has played professional soccer, who is still involved in the professional realm, and who is aware of just how short the best periods in a player's life are. One, from his perspective. Two, from what they see around them. Three, because we all interpret the world based on our personal experience. But I'm caught by this fact because it's something that could turn into quite the brouhaha. It could be taken absurdly seriously, or it could be simply looked at, acknowledged, and then brushed off. Now, <laughs> what the future might hold for Chelsea as well as the players and everything else like that with so much uncertainty, I appreciate that there's always going to be a need for a parent to look out for their child. And again, I'm recording on Mother's Day simply because mom and I don't have a call until later, but also recognizing the fact that when it comes to families, when it comes to relationships, there's always going to be a question of what are the lines and how are they being treated? Are certain things going beyond the line? Well, Thomas Tuchel clearly did not feel like even if this crossed a line that it was one he was going to deal with. And if your team's about to be bought by somebody else and all sorts of potential changes are on the way, you can't really, I guess, in my opinion, well, too much on those things simply because they're not going to benefit you. And that's it for me. Um, really enjoyed hanging out with you, looking over these great stories, sharing them with you. And it's been a pleasure to hang out with you on this episode of Chips and Channels. If you know of a story that I've missed or you want to make sure I get, please send an email. All you got to do is check the liner notes, all the best ways to do that. I look forward to the chance when I get to hang out and tell you more about the soccer stories I've discovered, my thoughts on them, and hear your thoughts as well. Remember too, if you are listening on the Anchor platform and others, they offer the chance to leave a voice message, question, or comment. I'd love to include those in an upcoming episode if that's something you'd like to do. It's easy to do, and should you have any questions in the process, again, email addresses in the liner notes. I'd love to help you out. I'd love to hear your story just as much as I'm looking forward to coming back next time and sharing more stories with you. Until then, enjoy all the soccer you can. I look forward to sharing more soccer stories in the near future.